For more than 3,300 years, the Jewish people have preserved and transmitted their wisdom about how to live life. From generation to generation, parents taught their children, teachers taught their students, in a living chain that stretches back to the giving of that great wisdom in the Sinai Desert. Perhaps never has there been a generation more desperately in need of this ancient wisdom, a wisdom today made available to the English-speaking world by scholars like Lawrence Kellerman. Sit back and enjoy while Lawrence Kellerman takes you on an adventure into the world of ancient wisdom for modern minds. We're going to start from the premise that God gave a Torah to the Jews at Mount Sinai. If you don't start from that premise, you can't begin to discuss the whole question of whether or not at Sinai, God also gave over some sort of oral tradition. But assuming what we've already discussed, which is, did God give the Torah? So let's go to the next step. I'm going to point to four hints that in fact there must have been some sort of oral tradition given over at Mount Sinai along with the text of the Torah. The first hint is as follows. When you open up a copy of the Torah, what you'll find is that the book has apparent errors, spelling mistakes, grammatical errors, syntactical errors, textual contradictions, and not a few of them quite a lot. I'll, I'll give you an example. If you open up to the first verse of the book, there's this line. It says there, Bereshis bara Elohim et et So you and I know that this verse should be translated as, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. But if you take a careful look at the way the verse is written, that's not what it says. The verse is written like this. Bereshit that does not mean in the beginning. If you want to write in the beginning using the root, Reish Aleph Shin, you would write Brishana. Brishit is construct form. That means the first word of the Torah means in the beginning of Bara Elohim et Ve'etarats. God created heaven and earth. So the verse as it's written is grammatically incorrect. It means in the beginning of. Uh, God created heaven and earth. And there is a word missing. Uh, what is that word? This is one example. And there are thousands and thousands of other examples like this. There is a scholar who actually went through the Torah and noted every time that the Torah has a verse which is unreadable, either because of a grammatical mistake or a spelling mistake or a syntactical error or a textual contradiction. Now, if you get a hold of this man's book, you can take a look at how flawed the text of the Torah is, and you'll be shocked. I'll tell you the name of the book. You can probably get a copy over Amazon. In scholarly bookstores, you can probably get copies of this book as well. The book is called Humash with Rashi. <laughs> because as you all know, Rashi's rule was Rashi would not write on a verse which was readable. He only wrote on verses that were fatally flawed. So if you want to see how messed up, how flawed the verses of the Torah are, just get a hold of this scholarly text called Humash the Rashi, open it up, and any page where there is no Rashi, the verses on that page are okay. And you start to flip through and you realize that there are how many pages without Rashi? Yeah, okay, right. If you find one, you're doing pretty good. Because virtually every single verse in the book is problematic. Every verse is unreadable because of one of these apparent mistakes. If you believe that God gave the Torah, you have to come to one of two conclusions. One possibility is that God is mentally retarded. <laughs> the other possibility is that these are not flaws at all. That each one of these textual anomalies is really a purposeful stylistic manipulation inserted into the text as a flag to hint to you about some deeper message that's happening there. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Take this first flaw, parent flaw. In the beginning of, uh, God created heaven and earth. Go ahead 
and read the verse literally and the mistake goes away. If you just read exactly literally what it says in the verse, you'll see the apparent mistake disappears and there's a deep meaning that's revealed. Can you add, to appreciate this, I'll just give you a little bit of background. There was a man who headed the city of San Francisco. His name was Mayor Moscone. Uh, he made some very off-color remark and an aide, of, an aide who was working on staff uh, was very offended by what he said. And this aide went that night to a friend of his who owned a gun shop and asked his friend if he could help him out. His friend said no problem at all. And his friend sold him a 45 Magnum gun with exploding bullets, with hollow tip bullets. So every bullet makes a hole about four inches wide. That night, the fellow went home, he got a good night's rest, woke up perky the next morning, uh, ready to rush off to work, headed off first thing in the morning to go greet the mayor. He didn't have time to eat breakfast, but what he did was he stopped on the way at a 7-Eleven and he picked up a uh, box of Twinkies. Now, on the way to work, he ate the entire box of Twinkies for breakfast, and when he arrived at work, he walked in, walked into the mayor's office. The mayor was in the middle of a meeting with a bunch of city councilmen, and this aide walked up to the mayor and said to the mayor, Mr. Mayor, I'm very disappointed with your attitude towards homosexuals, and I've come to express that. And he pulled out a 45 Magnum gun, put it up against the mayor's chest, and pulled the trigger. Okay. The mayor was splattered on the wall in pieces. The city councilmen who were sitting in the room were concerned. <laughs> they were diving underneath tables, and this guy was taking pot shots at the city councilmen trying to kill them. And this whole thing is taking place in City Hall, where there are hundreds of policemen. So the police hear these cannon shots going off in the mayor's office, and they come careening down a hallway, burst into the room, and they see this man standing there with a smoking 45 trying to kill the city councilman. The mayor is in pieces on the wall. The police tackle this guy. They get him on the ground. They handcuff him. As they're picking him up off the ground, he says, I killed the mayor because I hate him because of his policies. Okay, now, this is an open and shut case, right? You have a smoking gun, you have a ballistics report, you have 15 witnesses. The guy is going to get the electric chair, except it was California. <laughs> His attorney, he got himself a very clever Jewish attorney. And this attorney launched, I don't know if you want to call it the most famous or the most infamous uh, legal defense in California state history. It was called the Twinkie Defense. And what the lawyer did was, he had his client tested for hypoglycemia. And he found that his client had a slightly more than normal insulin reaction when he ate sugar, which after the sugar high brought his sugar very, very low. And based on this, he pled temporary insanity. The case that he made was that when the man ate the entire box of Twinkies, his blood sugar went through the roof very, very high. They timed the insulin reaction. It turned out if he would have consumed the entire box of Twinkies at the 7-Eleven, then the lowest blood sugar level would have been at the moment he was pulling the trigger. And his blood sugar would have recovered a few moments later, about the time they were picking him up off the ground, which is why he had the common sense to confess and say that he had shot the mayor. The, the case was tried in California. The man who murdered Mayor Moscone was acquitted based on the plea of temporary insanity. Today, the man who killed Mayor Moscone walks the streets of San Francisco. Yeah. They did put an injunction on him that he's never again allowed to eat Twinkies. <laughs> but besides this, he's free. Okay, now, in the closing arguments, this attorney said, you cannot convict my client. Because every single one of you was taught in high school that there are only two determinants of human behavior. There's nature and nurture. There's genes and environment. My client's genes are hypoglycemic. My client's environment was Twinkies. When you combine the two, there is no such thing as free will. I mean, after all, in high school, did they teach you about a nature and nurture free will controversy? It was always, what are the components of human behavior, nature and nurture? So given that's the case, there is no such thing as free will. And my client was driven by Twinkies to kill the mayor. So therefore, you cannot convict him because it was not within his power to stop himself. Comes the Torah in the first verse to respond to this claim. The Torah says, Bereshis bara Elohim et vetaretz. Read that literally. Be-reshis. With reshis, 
Bara Elohim at the Shemaim Vetaretz. God created heaven and earth. Now, the grammatical error is gone. The only problem you have left is you have a noun, Reishis, which we don't know what it means. With Reishis, God created heaven and earth. Well, what's that? So what you do is open up a concordance, an index to biblical verses, and look at every place that the word Reishis appears as a noun. And what you'll find is that the word Reishis almost invariably means one of two things. The word Reishis either means the Jews, or it means the Torah. Plug these back into the verse and see what makes sense. With the Jews, God created heaven and earth. Well, that's impossible. The Jews weren't around at the time. Okay, let's try again. With the Torah, God created heaven and earth. Now, this is a fascinating concept. What, what's being recommended here is that there's some kind of device called Torah. And with this thing, <laughs> create heaven <laughs> and earth. <laughs> now, this device called Torah then is really a nature-creating device. It created all of heaven and earth, all of nature. Theoretically, if I would take this thing and I would just turn it around and I would point this thing at myself and then click it on, in theory, I could go in and change my own nature. Comes the first verse of the Torah and says, in case you would like to argue that because of nature and nurture, you can't keep the book. You know, I, I'm not cut out for Torah because I have a genetic inclination towards cruelty. So the guy says, you know, listen, I'd love to be from, but I can't be from because, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm just a cruel kind of guy. Comes the first verse of the Torah and says, don't worry about that because you can go back in and reconstruct your own nature with the Torah because the Torah is a nature-creating device. In case someone says, listen, I can't get the Torah, I'm homosexual. I'm genetically pre-programmed. I can see on my genetic chart that I have the inclination towards homosexuality. Comes the book and says, don't worry. Torah can rebuild you from the inside out. You can change your nature. It turns out that the first verse of the entire book is the single most important verse in the book. And if it wasn't for that verse, no one would ever be bound by the Torah. And the apparent mistake is not really a mistake at all. It's a hint to a tremendously deep lesson that a human being can rebuild their nature using Torah. Okay. Claim those Orthodox Jews that all of the other mistakes are there not because God is mentally retarded, but because behind every one of those apparent errors, there's a very deep meaning. And the truth is, 2,000 years before the secular biblical critics ever arrived on the scene, the Orthodox Jews already had a vibrant literature describing the deep meaning behind every one of those apparent errors. Hint number one, that there might have been an oral tradition given over with the Torah, is what would you rather say? That the verses in this book, which you believe was given by God, are mistaken, or that in fact there's a deep meaning behind these apparent mistakes that are passed along in oral tradition. Okay, that's hint number one. Hint number two, that there might be an oral tradition that was given in Harsinai. Until the 6th century CE, every single copy of the Torah appeared as the Torah scroll in an ark. That is, every copy of the Torah was a scroll that was unvocalized. There was no nikud, there were no vowels in any text until the 6th century. In the 6th century, the Ben Asher family, who are known in secular biblical circles as the Masoretes, they created for the first time a book called a Chumash. The difference between the Torah scroll and the Chumash is in the Chumash, there actually is Nikud, there are vowels. Okay, now, Hebrew happens to be a language which is extraordinarily dependent on vocalization. And if you slightly change the vocalization, the exact same letters can mean something completely different. Which means, before the 6th century, when Ben Asher put in that vocalization, the Torah scroll would have been very, very difficult to read if you didn't have an oral tradition about how to read it. I'll give you an example. There's a verse in the book that says, do not cook a calf in its mother's... Milk. Oh. Oh. So it doesn't say milk. It says, don't cook a calf in its mother's chet lamed bet. Now that word chet lamed bet can be vocalized one of two ways. Either chalav, which means 
milk, or chelev, which means fat, a specific part of the fat on a specific part of the animal. Now, what did God forbid? Did he forbid cheeseburgers or fat burgers? <laughs> Based on the text of the Torah, there's no way to tell. There's no way that you could possibly know what was forbidden. And when God gave it to her, obviously he intended something. Now, it gets much worse than this. There's another verse in the Torah that reads as follows. Don't ever, ever, ever eat chet lamed bet. Okay, now, what does that mean? Now, you start working out the possibilities here. One possibility is Jews are never allowed to eat dairy products. And not only, not only are you forbidden to eat dairy products, but you can't even work in a McDonald's where you may end up cooking milk with meat. Okay, that's one vers version, if you give chalav and chalav. Okay, now let's flip it around. Another possibility, Jews are never allowed to eat dairy products, and you can't work in the McDonald's where you may end up cooking meat with fat. Or it could be that Jews are allowed to eat dairy products, but you cannot ever eat this forbidden fat, chalav, and you can't work in McDonald's where you might end up cooking meat and milk together. Or it could be the Jews are never allowed to eat fat, and you can't work, work in a McDonald's where you can't cook meat and fat together. Okay, I think there's four possibilities. Now, which one of these did God intend? God must have either said one of these four, or two or three or four out of the four, or he might have said, interpret it however you want. But he had to say something, because if he didn't say anything, you have no idea what the verse means. By the way, of course, when this is said over to, to Moshe, when Moses first received the Torah and God said, write this down, Moses would have asked, by the way, God, what is this chet lamedet? At which point God would have had to have said, well, it's whatever you want it to be. Or it's meat, or it's fat, or it's milk, or he had to say something. And this is one of dozens of examples in the book where if you change the vocalization, the meaning completely changes. Therefore, minimally at Mount Sinai, when the Torah was given over, God had to tell the people how to pronounce the words. Because otherwise there was no way they could possibly observe the book. Hint number one, there was an oral tradition, the apparent errors, which are probably not errors, they're probably hints to a much deeper tradition. Hint number two, when the book was given minimally, it had to be given with vocalization or you can't read it. Hint number three, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. This is not an easy question to answer. Try to keep in your head, completely separate, the contents of the written text of the Torah and what you know to be Judaism, the oral tradition. Keep them separate. Now let me ask you a question. According to the written text of the Torah alone, is there such a thing as a convert to Judaism? Yes, there is. It says that you should love the ger like you love your fellow Jew. There are certain halachas that apply to the ger. Okay, now, according to the written text of the Torah alone, which we know believes in conversion because it talks about a convert, According to the written text of the Torah alone, how do you convert to Judaism? Not a word. What that means is, clearly God says there's such a thing as conversion. So if somebody wants to convert, how do you know if they're Jewish or not? At Mount Sinai, God must have said that you do it with a prick and a dip, or you do it with, you know, going like, and spinning around in circles. He had to say something, or he could have said, do it however you want. You know, or do it like the local nation, or something. But if God said nothing, then you'd never have any way of knowing who's a convert and who's not a convert. Therefore, at Mount Sinai, God have said, must have said something about how a conversion works, even if that something was just make up whatever you want to make up. But he has to say something, how do you convert, because it doesn't say in the Torah. I'll give you another example. There's dozens of these. According to the written text of the Torah, is there such a thing as marriage? Yeah. Of course, a woman is only allowed to marry one man. When a man marries a woman, he owes her food, clothing, conjugal rights. There are verses in the Torah that discuss these things. Okay, now let me ask you. According to the written text of the Torah, how does a man and a woman get married? How do they, how, how do, they do that? Doesn't say. Doesn't say. How do you know if you're married? Now, this is not so problematic for a man who could marry more than one woman. For a woman, it's extremely problematic. Maybe you get married to a man by passing him in a hallway. And you can only marry, more, you only marry one man. You can't marry two, which means a woman has to live locked up in a closet. But don't lock, your, don't lock the woman in a closet. Why? Because it could be the way you get married is by locking yourself in a closet. <laughs> she's paralyzed. There's no way that a woman could possibly survive. She can't live in this religion. I'll give you another example. According to the Torah, is there such a thing as divorce? Yeah. Yes, it, there is. Yeah. And it even says how you do it. You give the woman a Sefer Kritut. How would you translate Sefer Kritut? It's a book of cutting off. 
Now, what is a book of cutting off? It's something very sharp that you throw at her? <laughs> how, how does she know when she's... Can you send it FedEx? Do you have to hand it her, to her? What are you writing there? Dinner was bad. Sign. Like, how, do you know, how does the woman know when she's divorced? In order for life to be functional, in order to work, there would have had to have been some definitions. In other words, in the Torah, there are dozens of concepts and institutions which are mentioned. So we know they exist in their part of Judaism, but they're nowhere defined. God would have had to have defined those concepts, otherwise practicing this religion is impossible. Okay, I'll give you one fourth and final hint. The written text of the Torah itself refers repeatedly to an oral tradition, which pretty much settles the issue. I'll give you an example. When the Torah is talking about how to construct the Mishkan, the mobile temple, so the Torah says, when you want to build the ark, build it according to the tmuna that I showed you. Okay, now, have you ever seen an illustrated Torah scroll? Yeah, me either. As far as we know, there are no pictures in a Torah scroll. And yet, the book itself says, construct the ark according to the tmuna. It says, construct the altar according to the tmuna that I showed you. Verse after verse keeps referring to these pictures that God showed to Moses which means there must have been something extra textual that was given over to Moses, something not in the book. I'll give you another example. There's a verse in Deuteronomy that says, in Dvarim, that says, when you want to eat meat, slaughter the animal as I, God, taught you. Where in the Torah does it talk about shrita? No place. But the verse says that I, God, taught you how to slaughter an animal. But it's not in the book. What can this be compared to? You know, there's this, this antitrust uh, uh, suit that's currently operating against Microsoft. They're not allowed to have uh, they're not allowed to have branches that are actually working together, connected in different countries. So imagine the following: Imagine that we intercept an email from Microsoft New York to Microsoft Tel Aviv, and the text of the email is: Conduct the advertising campaign as we discussed. So we take this email, we bring it into court, and we say, Microsoft New York is giving instructions to Microsoft Tel Aviv how to conduct an advertising campaign. Microsoft New York and Microsoft Tel Aviv say, no, it's not true. That was the only email. There was no other communication. Okay, judge, what do you say? The email says, conduct the advertising campaign as we discussed. Do you think there was another discussion? Probably. Obviously, of course. If the Torah says you should slaughter the animal as I taught you and nowhere in the written text is there instructions, then it must be that the instructions were passed along orally. That's the logical conclusion. You don't need a PhD to figure that out. When you start flipping through the Torah, as you go through the Torah this year, you'll see portion after portion where there are references to this oral tradition. So, based on the apparent errors the lack of vocalization in a Torah text, the concepts and institutions which are nowhere defined in the book, but which are mentioned in the book, and the explicit references to the oral tradition, these four hints suggest very strongly there must have been something oral given over at Mount Sinai. The only question is now, who's got it? Where could it possibly be? It was definitely given. The question is, is that thing still around? And if so, who's got it? Let's address the question of maybe the oral tradition is just simply not around today. So let me ask you, when God gave the Torah, based on the text, if you had to infer from the text, would you guess that he only wanted the first generation of Jews to follow the Torah? Or is there something in the text that hints to you that maybe he wanted the second generation to follow it as well? Oh, that's a good hint, yeah. He says, teach your children, your children's children, this is an eternal covenant, right? I want this to go on forever. Clearly, he wanted every generation of Jews to follow the Torah. Let me ask you something. Can you follow the Torah if you can't read it? Can you read the Torah if you can't, if you have no vocalization and concepts and institutions which are nowhere defined? No, you're dead in the water. Which means God would want the oral tradition to be around intact someplace. Therefore, in theory, the oral tradition should be bouncing around this planet someplace, and the only question we've got to figure out now is, how can we possibly identify who's got it? So I followed the following line of reasoning. You'll tell me if this is logical or not. Whoever is carrying God's explanation of the God-given Torah has got to believe that God gave the Torah. 
So that severely limits the field. What groups on this planet believe that God gave the Torah? There's five groups, I think. Those five groups are all members of Baha'i faith. Baha'i faith are, are break off from the Shiite Muslims. Every single Sikh on the planet, the Sikhs believe that there were a number of books that were given by God to man. Among those books were the Psalms. He, they also believe the Torah was given to the Jews of Mount Sinai. So you have every single Sikh, every single member of Baha'i faith. You have the vast, vast majority of Muslims. Why? Because the Muslims believe that the Torah was given to the Jews. Then it was replaced by the New Testament. They believe that Jesus was a prophet, the Muslims. They don't believe he was God, but they think he was a prophet. And then, just as Jesus replaced the Torah with the New Testament, so too Muhammad replaced the New Testament with the Quran. But that means they believe that God gave the Torah to the Jews. And if you ask a Muslim, they'll tell you, in fact, God did give the Torah to the Jews. So, but I only say it's, it's the vast majority of Muslims. Why? Because there are, especially in America today, there are some secular Muslims who don't believe that God gave the Quran either. So they also reject that God gave the Torah. But you're talking about well over 90% of the Islamic population. So you have all the Baha'i faith, every member of Baha'i faith, every member of the Sikhs, the vast majority of Muslims, I'll say more than 50% of Christians. The reason I have to exclude a large segment of Christians is because there are a number of secularized Christians. So those secularized Christians who don't believe that God gave the New Testament, they also don't believe he gave the Torah. So you have all of the Sikhs, all of Baha'i faith, the vast majority of Muslims, most Christians, and a tiny minority of Jews believe God gave the Torah to the Jews. <laughs> okay, now, let's start going through these groups and seeing which of these groups might be carrying the oral tradition. Walk up to your local Baha'i faith Nick or Sikh and say to them, excuse me, could you tell me something about the Jewish oral tradition? So what will they say? They'll say, does that, does that have to do with the dietary laws? <laughs> what do you mean oral tradition? So if you say, no, you know, something that was given at Mount Sinai that's not written down, they'll say, we never heard of such a thing. Right? Why? They have never heard of such a thing. It's completely off their radar. Walk up to a Muslim and ask the Muslim, have you ever heard of the Jewish oral tradition? The Muslim will say, yeah, it's a lie. There never was a Jewish oral tradition. It was a lie made up by the rabbis. Why will a Muslim say that? Because the Muslims accept that Christianity was true, except Jesus wasn't God. And Christianity had to come and deny the Jewish oral tradition because according to the Jewish oral tradition, the Messiah was supposed to get all the Jews to be from, he was supposed to rebuild the temple, lead the Jews in wars, eventually make goodness prevail in the world, and Jesus did none of these things. So therefore, the Christians had to reject the Jewish oral tradition as being a lie made up by rabbis. Otherwise, Christianity could never get off the ground. And since the Muslims accept Christianity, both the Christians and the Muslims say there, was, there never was a Jewish oral tradition. By the way, what will they do if you start showing them these four hints for an oral, Jewish oral tradition? They will stammer. That leaves one possible group who could be carrying an oral tradition on this planet, and that is the Jews. Among the Jews, there are all sorts of different groups. There's the Reform, there's the Conservative, there's the Reconstructionists, there's the nudist groups in California. Yeah, there's all these different groups. Now, of these groups, who believes in a God-given oral tradition? So it's very easy to work out. They've all made public statements on the matter. The Reform, they broke off 200 years ago, especially the Pittsburgh Convention, saying God didn't even give the Torah. The Torah is a man-made document. It was not written by God, and certainly there's no oral tradition. It was at the Pittsburgh Convention when they actually condemned Brit Milah, circumcision, as a barbarous cruelty and a throwback to our African roots. They came out against kitchen Judaism, against keeping kosher. The first reform rabbinical ordination ceremony they served frog legs a la creme and all sorts of other interesting non-kosher foods in order to make the point that God did not give the Torah. So from the very, very, very beginning of the reform breakoff, there was a complete rejection of a divine Torah, let alone a divine oral tradition. Therefore, the reform couldn't be carrying it. They, they reformed the tradition. They broke away from the tradition 200 years ago. Much, much later, 
an argument broke out between the leaders of the reform movement, Wise and Frankel, who initially was part of the reform movement, broke off to the right. Frankel ended up becoming the grandfather of the conservative movement. Frankel said that if you continue to force Jews to abandon their traditions, you're going to inspire a rebellion. And therefore, he advised the reform movement, cut it out, like slow down, stop shaking the Jews by the collar and tearing them away from their traditions. Eventually, they're going to rebel and go right back to Orthodox Judaism. And therefore, Frankel said, the whole goal is to move the Jews forward so slowly that no one notices the forward progress. Make every change so apparently natural that no one actually realizes the Jews are being secularized. And in this way, you will actually succeed in moving the Jews away from these barbaric traditions, and they won't rebel against you. And so the conservative philosophy was, don't make any public statements about whether the Torah is from God or not from God. Don't make statements about this. Just allow the Jews to slowly drift from tradition, and every time the Jews take a step to the left, rubber stamp that step, saying, yeah, that's what God intended. Of course you can drive to the synagogue on Shabbat. Of course. Aye, that's lighting a fire, and it says explicitly in the Torah, right? Don't light a fire in any of your dwelling places. So that's okay. You can still light fires. What you're all doing is what God wants you to be doing. So in this way, the reform movement very quickly, the conservative movement much more slowly, allowed the Jews to drift away from the tradition. But neither one of them believed that God gave the Torah, although if you grew up in a conservative synagogue 10 to 15 years ago, you never would have known this. Because in conservative synagogues, it was never mentioned that God didn't give the Torah. Of course, now, as of two years ago, the conservative movement published its own chumash, its own copy of the Torah, called Eitz Chaim. And it's really worth taking a look at this book. The book is edited by Harold Kushner, who was the man who said that if God exists, he certainly doesn't have control over nature because a terrible thing happened to his son, and so it couldn't be that God actually has control over nature. The author of one of the primary commentaries in the book is Chaim Potok. <laughs> right? Chaim Potok is not a biblical scholar. He's a, an author of fiction. The Chosen and other great works. And he is one of the great commentators who writes in this book. And the book itself says that Moses never existed. He's a great nationalistic folk hero. But Moses never existed. For sure the Torah was not given at Mount Sinai. And of course there's no oral tradition. So you've got the reform who denied, the conservative denied, the reconstructionists came out with Mordechai Kaplan in a rebellion against the conservative movement saying that not only did God not give the Torah, but God himself doesn't exist. There's no such thing as God. There's something called godliness. Godliness is the greatest, most moral, most refined aspect in every human being. But there's no such thing as the supernatural, according to Kaplan. So the Reconstructionist movement denies anything supernatural. So when you look at the flowchart, you've got the Orthodox streaming through history in every generation proclaiming, we've got the Torah and we've got the oral tradition. And every other break-off group along the way, the Christians, the Karaites, the Reform, the Conservative, the Reconstructionists, every single one of these groups saying, there is no oral tradition. So what occurred to me was, I don't need a PhD to figure out who could possibly be carrying the oral tradition. It's got to be out there someplace, and there's only one group that could be carrying it. That leads to the whole question of corruption. But come on. I mean, Kellerman, let's be reasonable. Are you telling me that for 3,000 years, an oral tradition was passed father to son, teacher to student, and it's intact today? Haven't you ever played the game of telephone? So. I believe that there are two answers to this question. One that I do not like at all, but I think it's true, so I'll tell it to you. But I don't like it. It emotionally does nothing for me. And one that I love, and I think you'll appreciate as well. The one that I don't like, but which is true, is this. If God is good, would he want the Torah to be forgotten? No. If God is omnipotent, could he prevent the Torah from being forgotten? If God is omniscient, would he know the Torah is about to be forgotten? Yeah. So given this is the case, if necessary, God would make a miracle to prevent the Torah from being forgotten. Or another way of saying that is, if God wants the oral tradition intact, then it's intact. All right, it's clean, it's logical. I hate this answer because emotionally it's pretty flat. Now I'll give you one that I love. 
Several years ago, I received a phone call from an Orthodox youth group in the United States called NCSY. Ever heard of this group? Yeah. Their region in California, on the West Coast, was having a convention, and they wanted to know if it would be possible for me to come out from Israel to their convention and speak for them. I told them that I would make the trip on condition. The regional director said, what's your condition? I said, I want total control, not only over the educational portion of this regional convention, I would need total control over the recreational portion as well. So the director said, what do you mean? So I said, I'll explain. I told him what I meant. He said, Kellerman, they're all yours. <laughs> took me two weeks to plan the program. I flew out to California. They took over a hotel 45 minutes north of LA. I arrived at the hotel early. Nobody knew who I was. I was just a guy sitting in a corner. As per my instructions, when 220 NCSYers arrived to take over this hotel, they were immediately told by the Majorim and Majorchot, by the counselors, take your luggage to your rooms, put your luggage down, and come immediately downstairs to the ballroom for the icebreaker. Okay, now apparently this is something normal that happens in NCSY. When kids first arrive, there often is an icebreaker, so no one was suspicious. Kids went up, they put their luggage down, they came down to the ballroom. When they walked into the ballroom, we had cleared all the chairs and tables off to one side. The chief counselor was standing on a chair, and he said to everybody, okay, we're gonna play the game of telephone. Everybody line up now. We're gonna divide up in teams of 12. Okay, number off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, one, two. And everybody numbered off. Chief counsel said, okay, all the number ones line up over here. All the number twos, 15 yards away, right over here. All the number threes, right over here, 15 yards down the line. Number four is right over here. We made 12 lines. Everyone was told the rules. We're gonna give a card to the first person in line. That person can look at the card as long as he wants. When he's done looking at the card, he has to hand the card back to the counselor who hands it to him. Number one in the line can then speak to number two in the line. Number two in the line can speak to number three in the line. If we catch number five speaking to number seven, they skip a generation, that team is disqualified. You can only speak to the generation immediately before you or the generation immediately after you. The game began. I prepared the cards. The message was short and very intuitive. The message was, the black dog jumped over the green fence, fell into a blue pool, and came out with red eyes. Simple to memorize. The cards were handed to the first guy in line. After a few moments, the first guy in line handed the card back to the counselor. First guy told the second guy, second guy told the third guy, third guy told the fourth, going straight through until we were through the entire line. The whole game took about five minutes, about 300 seconds, to get through 22 people. As per instructions, the last person in each line was given a blank index card and was asked to write down the index card what they had heard from the person before them. I then walked through the lines collecting the index cards from the last person in each line and on the spot I sat down with a calculator and tallied the results. Okay. The results of this game were as follows. 100% of the teams got the message 100% wrong. <laughs> I'm talking about total garbage. I had cards that said things like, I want to go to Jack in the Box, man. I mean, like, garbage. There was no relationship whatsoever between what it said on the cards and the initial message, yes? Okay. They fell right into the trap. They didn't realize where this was going. Everyone started to disperse, and the chief counselor said, wait, 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 we're going to play again. So... The kids said, no, man, we're bored. Let's do something else. She goes, no, we're going to play again. Said, no, man, we want to do something else. And everyone was walking out of the room. So on cue, the chief counselor stood up on a chair and said in front of everybody, no, we're going to play again. And he pulled out of his coat 12 $100 bills. We'd gotten a donor to donate 1200 bucks to run the experiment. Everybody ran over. They were checking them. Whoa, man, they're real, man. Yeah, right, right. Everyone was lining up. Like, go, man, line up quick. Let's go, let's go. Yeah, right, right. We told the teams, any team that gets it right gets a crisp new $100 bill. This time, the message was much longer and much less intuitive. Very difficult to memorize. We told them, 
Anyone who gets caught cheating is disqualified. We had counselors patrolling every place to make sure that we would never have anyone skipping generations. This time the scene was a little bit different. We handed the cards to the first guys in line. And the first guys in line were staring at those cards. <laughs> Everyone was screaming, get it right, man, get it right! <laughs> I saw in one line, number six had number seven on the ground. He was going, no man, that's not what I said, that's not what I said! Yeah. Yeah. They were a little bit more intense. <laughs> Instead of taking five minutes to run the game, this time it took us about 45 minutes. People were taking it a little bit more seriously. At the end, we gave blank index cards to the last person in each line. They wrote down what they had heard. I went by, collected all the index cards, sat down with the calculator, and calculated the results. Okay. This time, on the second run of the experiment, there were two teams who came up with total garbage. And the people on those teams were saying, Who did it? I'm going to kill him! I'm going to kill him! Who did it? <laughs> the other 10 teams got the message entirely right. They got 90%, 90% of the letters right or higher. That is, for approximately five bucks a person, a little bit less, we kicked the accuracy from zero up to 90%. So what you see is, the game of telephone, the whole point is to mess up the message. So if you want to mess it up, it's very easy. But if you want to pass it accurately, you can pass information very accurately. Now the truth is, I wanted to run the game again on that weekend, but I didn't realize I was dealing with 13 to 17 year old kids. And you know, the studies show that 13 to 17 year olds, they don't actually have gray matter, they only have hormones. So <laughs> it w we couldn't run the game again. They had no attention span, the entire thing fell apart and that was it. I'll tell you what I wanted to do that weekend, which I didn't get to do. And then I actually was, about four years later, able to run most of this experiment here in Jerusalem. And I'll tell you what happened here. I'm going to ask you, though, to guess what you think would be the result if I ran the game the way that I wanted to run it. What I would like to do is, I see that for $5, I can bounce the accuracy from 0 up to 90%. What do you think the accuracy would go to if I change the game in this way? We give the message to the first person in each line. He can look at the message for as long as he wants. When he's done looking at the message, he hands the card back to the counselor. And then, before the number one guys in each line speak to the number twos, we take all the number ones out of the room. They sit in a conference room and they discuss what they think the card said. They vote. And after they've voted, then all the number ones are brought back out of the room. And the number ones are only allowed to tell the number twos whatever the majority vote in that room was. Then all the number twos are taken out. They discuss what they heard from the number ones. They vote. They come back. And the number twos are only allowed to tell the number threes whatever the majority vote in the room was, even if they disagreed. And so on and so forth through all the generations. Is there any error that this procedure would wipe out? No. Yes, of course. What's the error? If one guy gets it wrong, or three or even five guys gets it wrong, so all of their mistake will be corrected by the voting procedure. So therefore, unless you have seven out of the 12 that messes it up, this will correct the error. So if, if I would add, if I would keep the $5 and I would add a voting procedure, take, by the way, I ran the experiment so I know what the answer is, but just take a wild guess. What will the accuracy go to? 100. Okay. Say it's 100. In a minute, I'll tell you what happens. Okay, now, change the game again. Once again, keep the $5 and keep the voting procedure. But change the game in this way. This time... The number ones look at the card, they go off into the room, they vote, but before the number ones are allowed to speak to the number twos and say over the majority vote in that room, every number one has to turn around and face the counselor. The counselor's holding the card. The number one tells the counselor what he thinks the card says. If the number one gets it right, then the counselor puts his hands on the number one's head and says, I hereby ordain you an Orthodox rabbi. <laughs> With smicha, the number one then turns around and tells the number two. The number twos are all taken out, they vote, they come back, but before the number twos can tell the majority opinion to the number threes, every number two has to turn around and tell the number one what he's about to tell the number three. If the number one thinks he got it right, the number one gives him smicha, rabbinical ordination, and then the number two can turn around and tell the number three, and so on and so forth. The number threes go out, they come back, but they have to tell the number twos what they're going to say to the number fours before they can go on. 
Is there any error that this would correct? Of course. Now, if we add this smicha procedure, what do you guess the accuracy would go to? We're up to 100%. 115%. Okay, 115%. Now, change the game again. Keep the five bucks, yeah? Keep the voting procedure. Keep the smicha procedure. Just make the following change. Instead of having 13 to 7-year-old kids on an NCSY weekend having a great time passing information along, make the change that instead you have 40 to 70-year-old responsible communal leaders who feel that everything is riding on this message getting across correctly. Do you think that 40, 70-year-old communal leaders who think this is from God would take it any more seriously than 13 to 17-year-old kids on an NCSY weekend? Yeah, sure. sure. If you added that these people really care about what they're doing, and we're up to 115% accuracy, what would you expect the accuracy to go to? Let's see, 200%. Okay. Change the game again. This time, keep the five bucks. Keep the voting procedure, keep the smicha. Keep the fact you're gonna have 47 year olds who are passing along the information. Just add one more thing. We know that the people who participated in the transfer of the oral tradition were not allowed to transfer this information unless they kept something called a machberet. Every person who passed along oral tradition had their own private notebook. If we insist that each person keeps their own written record of what's being said to them, will that do anything to up, up the accuracy? Okay, so the 200% will then be 300%. Okay, now, I ran the experiment, almost. I'll tell you what happened. There's a group that comes to Israel once a year called Michlelet. It's a group of about, depends on the year, but that year was about 250 extremely serious teenage girls who come here to learn 10 to 12 hours a day. In other words, they want to spend their summer, these are girls who want to spend their summer 10 to 12 hours a day learning Torah. They go for one field trip a week. The whole rest of the time they came here because they want to learn. These are very serious people. So I went to the head of the program and I said, would it be okay if I ran a little experiment with them? And he said, fine. So I ran the following experiment. I went to the group and I said to them, I'd, I'd like to show the world that it is possible to transmit information orally intact and I need your help. And I explained that I was going to be bringing in about 100 observers who were going to be watching the experiment. And if these girls would make a mistake and blow it, this would be the biggest chilul Hashem, this would be the biggest profaning of God's name in modern history. If they get it right, it'll be a big kiddush Hashem. It'll demonstrate that, in fact, the tradition is reliable. But if they blow, it could be bad. And therefore, I said, you have to take this seriously. Okay, on the spot, about 20 girls dropped out because <laughs> they were so afraid that they would blow it. Okay, now... We didn't do the $5. Instead, what we did was we promised each person on a winning team that they would get ice cream, which many people said was better than $5. In order to create the, the feeling of responsibility of the 40, 70-year-olds, I gave them this, this talk. I didn't want them to use notebooks because I felt if they use notebooks, for sure they're gonna get it right. There's no challenge. So I didn't allow them to use notebooks, but what we did do was we had each group go out vote, come back, and then they had to turn to the previous generation and get smicha, get ordination, before they could tell the next generation. Okay. To make sure that the message was sufficiently complex, what I did was I took about a dozen verses about korbanos, about sacrifices, and because these girls, they were so scholarly, they might have known the Hebrew verses, I took the English translation from the Koran Chumash, so I had about a dozen verses about sacrifices in English, and I switched around the order of all the verses, put it on 12 cards, and ran the game. Okay. It took us over three hours to get through the, the generations. At the end of the three hours, I told the, the ladies that each, the last person in each line had to stand up in front of the group of 350 people, about 100 uh, witnesses and about 250 participants, Right, the last person each one had to stand up, each one of the 12 teams, and they had to recite the 12 verses. And I told them that if they corrected themselves in the middle of reciting, their team is disqualified. Meaning if they say, and you should take the goat, I mean the sheep, then their team is disqualified. They're allowed to say each word once. 
So it took about an hour for the last 12 girls to say over what it said on the card. And one by one, each girl said it over. And when the 12th woman had said over every single word of these dozen verses perfectly, the entire group of 350 people exploded into a standing ovation, demonstrating that even without the notebook, the system is so foolproof that the information can be passed accurately. Now, of course, there's only about a dozen verses. And you could argue that, of course, the oral tradition is far more vast than a dozen verses. But realize that you have a lot more than three hours to master the oral tradition. What we've demonstrated is that the technology that was used to give over the oral tradition would make it unnecessary for there to be a miracle to keep intact. Now, of course, if God wants the oral tradition to be intact, it will be intact. Which means if God needs to make a miracle, he'll make a miracle to make sure it remains intact. But the reality is that you probably will not require a miracle to keep the oral tradition intact because the system is so good for giving it over that we see practically it works. By the way, there is no copyright on these experiments. You can run one yourself if you don't believe the oral tradition can be passed intact. Go ahead and run it yourself. You'll see right away. By the way, realize that every professional training program in the world uses a combination of two things, written texts and oral tradition. Medical schools, law schools, none of them depend on text alone. They all have lecture that's being given over as well. If you go to art school, any place you go, right, the way they give, and you depend on this information. The bus drivers learn how to buy, drive their buses through an oral tradition. Everyone learns. Astronauts learn how to go to the moon with an oral tradition. It's passed to them orally through lecture. And it's done accurately because there's accurate checking procedures and testing procedures. And that means the information can be passed over accurately. So. What we've now established is there had to be an oral tradition given to Mount Sinai. It's got to still be intact today. There's only one possible carrier, that's those Orthodox Jews. And there's no reason to believe that it was ever corrupted. That leads to the question, however, of Machlokas. What do you mean it wasn't corrupted? When I open up Talmudic texts or Midrashic texts, I see that there was tremendous disagreement among the rabbis. One rabbi says X, the other rabbi says not X, and more. If you ask the same question to two rabbis at your yeshiva, the odds are you will get two completely different answers. So now, what do you mean it hasn't been messed up? Clearly there's some confusion here. So in order to understand what's going on here, you have to know this. There is a Hebrew word for an argument where I say, I'm right and you're wrong. That Hebrew word is vikuach. Vikuach is, I'm right, you're wrong. It's from the word mochiach, which is proof. When I'm showing that I'm correct and you're not correct, that's called vikuach. Okay. There is no record in any Talmudic source of vikuach among Talmudic authorities. And there's no vikuach between any of your rabbis. In the Talmud, the word that we use is Machloket. Could someone tell me what is the three-letter Hebrew root of the word machloket? Chelik, which means part or portion. When there's a machloket, those Orthodox Jews think that one person has one portion of the truth, one aspect of what is said at Sinai, and another person has another aspect or portion of what was said at Sinai. This explains a line that appears over and over again in the Talmud, which otherwise is very, very difficult to explain. Two rabbis are fighting. One says X, the other says not X. And the Talmudic editor jumps in and says, Elu ve'elu, divrelu kimchaim. These and these are words of the living God. The Talmud says, who's right, this one or that one? They are both right. Now, how can they both be right? So, the Talmud tells a story at Mount Sinai of what took place. God said, I'm the Lord your God. Every single Jew present dropped dead. God sent angels revive them. As they were getting up off the ground, one guy said to the other, man, that was unbelievable. God spoke. I can't believe it. Then God said, you should have no other gods before me. Boom, they all hit the ground again. God revived them. As they're getting up, one guy says to his friend, oh my God, did you hear that? God said X. The other guy said, what do you mean God said X? I was standing right here. He said, why? The third guy says, what are you guys smoking, man? It's Z. <laughs> there was complete disagreement on the spot about what God had said. Even though they all agreed, he said the words, I'm the Lord thy God. Practically what that meant 
Each person received a completely unique message. This explains the Zohar that says that at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai, there were 600,000 Torahs given over. Now, why would God do such a thing? Why would he give over 600,000 Torahs? Well, how many adults were standing at Mount Sinai? There were 600,000 adult men who were married to 600,000 adult women. There were 600,000 soul pairs. The Zohar here is telling you there was a separate Torah given to every single soul that was Mount Sinai. Why would God do such a thing? I'll use a metaphor. Imagine the following. Gentlemen, ladies, fellow members of the board of directors of the most expensive high school on the planet, thank you for coming together today. Yes, once again this year, we are charging $100,000 per kid per year for the children to come to our high school. But it's worth it because we promise the parents we'll squeeze every drop of potential out of those kids. These kids will become everything they can be by being at our school. Now, the reason we called the meeting today is because, as you know, we have a very large incoming class. We've got an incoming class of about 100 kids. And as always, we did advanced academic testing before the new class arrived. And the rumor's true. To our chagrin, we've discovered that in mathematics, half of the group is very advanced. And in mathematics, the other half of the group is mentally retarded. So we're trying to decide this year if we should throw them all into one class and just have one teacher and have one teacher give it over to everybody the same way, or if we should split the group and have two separate groups, one advanced and one remediary, and have each teacher teach to that group's level. Now, this is what we've come to vote on today. Ladies and gentlemen, what do you say? In order to squeeze every drop of potential out of these kids today, we have one teacher or two teachers? Two. Okay, now we are charging $100,000 per kid. We really could afford two or four. Should we have two or four? Four. Now we are charging $100,000 per kid. I mean, we really could have eight classes or four classes. We want to make sure we get every drop of potential squeezed out of every kid. What do you say? Four or eight? Now you realize where this is going. We're going to have a team of private tutors on every kid. Why? Because Every person has a unique psychological profile, a unique emotional profile, a unique spiritual profile, a unique intellectual profile. There is no one on the planet like you. There never has been anybody on the planet like you. You are, pardon the pun, chad pa'ami. <laughs> Which means, if I'm going to draw forth all of your potential, I've got to approach you in a totally unique fashion. Now, if we can figure this out, so can God. <laughs> and therefore, when God gave over the Torah, He gave it over in such a way that every person had a completely unique system that would draw forth his potential. So what does this mean? Does that mean some people can't eat pig and some people can't? No. The way the variety is played, at, played out is as follows. You all know that after you eat meat, you can't eat milk right away. How long do you have to wait after you eat meat? You have to wait... 30 minutes. Six hours. Everyone just said different things. One guy said six hours, there's three hours, there's one hour, there's the Bali Taisvis who say, you just rinse out your mouth, bench, and then you can eat right away. With how long you have to wait between meat and milk, there's about five different approaches. Now, you all know that you cannot start flipping lights on and off as soon as the sun hits the horizon on Saturday night. Once the sun disappears behind the horizon, you have to wait a certain amount of time before Shabbat actually leaves. How long do you have to wait? Oh, very good. We have to wait till Banish Mashas. And we all know that Banish Mashas is how many minutes? So there's, there's uh, 16, there's 20, there's 35, there's 45, there's 72, and there's floating depending on your position uh, uh, in latitude and longitude. It's like this. When it comes to when Shabbat leaves, there's about seven different approaches. Okay, now watch. We do not have all of Hilchas Kashras and all of Hilchas Shabbos on the table. We have one little detail about Kashras, how long you have to wait after eating meat, and one little detail about Shabbos, when does Shabbos go out? With just these two details on the table, how many total permutations can you come up with? How many total combinations are there? If there's five of one and seven of the other, how many total permutations can there be? 35, 35 permutations. Right now, with two details of Halacha, we've got 35 Judaism sitting on the table. Now you realize, if you start calculating in, all the different machlochsim, all the different approaches to every halacha that we possess, there will be millions and millions of Judaisms. But here's the key. The Zohar says there were only 600,000 given at Mount Sinai. That means 
that you cannot randomly collect and combine humras and kulas, stringencies and leniencies, because you will create a Frankenstein Judaism that never existed. Indeed, there are only 600,000 systems that God created that will actually perfect the human soul. By the way, this will explain why it's possible that there could be someone who is acting very, very religious and their character is despicable. Because if somebody on their own says, well, listen, I'll take this leniency and that leniency and this leniency and that leniency and they can assemble this Frankenstein Judaism that God never said. And they can keep saying, well, I have a heter, I have a heter. I have, look, the rabbi said this. And they combine these things that were never meant to be combined. They will create a Judaism that won't work. And they won't be affected by it. This leads to the following practical conclusion. It is obvious if God gave the Torah, he had to have given an oral tradition along with it because the book cannot be understood without an oral tradition. And the book mentions an oral tradition. The only possible carrier of that oral tradition bouncing around on this planet are those Orthodox Jews, which means they must have it. It's got to be intact someplace because God wouldn't want it to get lost. And we see there's no reason to believe it would ever be corrupted because the system is so good. And even if there was a flaw in the system, God would make a miracle to keep it intact. That means there is an oral tradition available today and those Orthodox Jews have got it. But of all the millions of possible permutations, there's only 600,000 which are actually Judaism given at Mount Sinai. Which means, if you would like to practice Judaism, there's only one option in front of you. You've got to go get yourself a real live teacher who heard from somebody, who heard from somebody, who heard from somebody, who heard from Moshe at Mount Sinai. Otherwise, there's no way you'll ever be able to find out what was said at Mount Sinai because you can't figure it out from books combining different approaches. Can you think of any Jewish text that hints that you've got to have a real live teacher who gives you over the oral tradition that he received from his teacher about what Moses said? Say? What does it say in Pirkei Avos? Happens to be, there's, we, the Mishnah is very terse in its phraseology. There's almost nothing that's repeated in the Mishnah, and yet, in the first chapter of the father of all Mishnahs, Pirkei Avos, it says twice, get yourself a real-life teacher. You're beginning to appreciate why. Because the only way that you could ever know what Moses said at Mount Sinai, the only way you could ever know the vast majority of Judaism, which is oral tradition, would be if you came to yeshiva and you sat and you sucked up from your teacher what he heard from his teacher who heard from his teacher who heard from Moses. I'll leave you with this metaphor. Ladies, gentlemen, fellow members of the surgical instruction staff here at Harvard Medical School, thank you for coming together today. Yes, the rumor is true that we, the deans of Harvard Medical School, are terribly disappointed with your performance as surgical instructors. Excuse me, excuse me, I know you train the best brain surgeons in the world. Just a minute, I'll explain. As I was saying, we're very disappointed in your performance because it has reached our attention that you, the brain surgery staff here at, at Harvard, have been training 30 brain surgeons a year. Do you know how many people die every year because they can't get to someone who is a Harvard-trained brain surgeon? If you would be training 300 or 3,000 brain surgeons a year, that would be an accomplishment. 30? You're murderers! <laughs> and therefore, we the deans of Harvard Medical School have decided to make a small change in the way that we run things here at Harvard. And that is that, yes, there's a man passing out literature assignment forms. Could each of you please take one of those forms? What you're supposed to do is, each day, when you give your medical students a literature assignment, just please write down this sheet of paper. Submit these to our office daily. We are going to make plates of every literature assignment that a Harvard Med School student reads during his four years here at Harvard Med. Starting tomorrow morning, the rumor is true, when you walk into your classrooms, there will be a professional studio team there and they're going to hook you up to recording equipment. Please cooperate. They're going to record every lecture in brain surgery that you give here at Harvard over the next four years. We've already hired a professional transcription team. They're going to transcribe all of these tapes, and they're going to put them into a 10-volume set. 
That 10-volume set of all the lectures given during Harvard Medical's Brain Surgery Instruction Program will be bubble-packed along with another 10 volumes of all the literature that you read when you're training as a Harvard brain surgeon. And this 20-volume set will have a red, white, and blue sticker put on it that says, become a Harvard brain surgeon. Then we're going to sell this thing over Amazon.com and Barnes and & Noble. <laughs> and then anyone who wants to do brain surgery can just read the books and start cutting. Isn't this a great idea? <laughs> you know, how do people in the room would allow somebody to open up your head who would learn brain surgery from a book? I'll give you another metaphor. Every person in this room got here by flying on a plane. Now imagine, you're walking down the skywalk to get on the plane. And as you're walking down the skywalk, you get to the point where you step from the skywalk onto the plane and standing right there to your left, right before you go towards your seat, you see the pilot and the co-pilot. And as you walk by them, you hear this conversation and the co-pilot says to the pilot, are, are you sure you know how to take off a Boeing 777? And you hear the pilot say back, Man, I read the book three times. What's the big deal? <laughs> Are you going to get on the plane? No. Because you know the complex information can never be transmitted in written form alone. It will get messed up. And therefore, back at Mount Sinai 3,300 years ago, God must have given over, along with the written text, an oral tradition. That oral tradition must be intact. There's only one possible group of carriers, and they claim that they've got it, and they claim that it is intact. And logically, it seems that it should be. If I haven't made some sort of error during the last few minutes, the logical conclusion is go, get yourself a teacher, and find out what God said to Moses at Mount Sinai. Thank you. That concludes our presentation of Ancient Wisdom for Modern Minds by Lawrence Kellerman. For more tapes by Lawrence Kellerman, visit www.lawrencekellerman.com. That's www.lawrencekellerman.com.